Hey y'all, before we begin, I want to make sure you know about my live parent workshops. One Friday a month, I host a live virtual parent workshop on topics related to raising neurodivergent kids and teens. We cover topics like how to talk to your child about their diagnosis, how to support negative self-talk, and navigating school for your child. You can register for workshops one at a time, or you can become an all-access subscriber on Substack for instant access to all the workshops and replays. To browse the workshop library and subscribe, go to learnwithdremily.substack.com and click Parent Workshops. Hey y'all, before we begin, if you're a school administrator who loves watching your teachers and students thrive, but you feel your staff needs more training to meet the needs of such a diverse group of learners, I am here for you. I am now offering professional development for pre-K through 8th grade educators, both in-person and virtually. For more information about pricing and scheduling, go to learnwithdremily.com schools to get started. I mean, the whole field of somatic psychology is just exploding, which is fabulous because I feel like there's more recognition, more understanding of these things that we're talking about, more credibility to them. And it's finally starting to penetrate the field of education. Welcome to season two of the Learn with Dr. Emily podcast, where parents and teachers come together for neurodivergent youth. I'm your host, Dr. Emily King, child psychologist and former school psychologist. And I am on a mission to help everyone understand that nurturing neurodivergent children isn't about changing them, but about changing us. This season, I will be bringing you more interviews from some of my favorite colleagues related to neurodiversity, education, mental health, and parenting. You can learn more about my resources for educators and parents at learnwithdremily.com or just keep listening here. So let's get started with today's interview. Hey, y'all, and welcome back to the Learn with Dr. Emily podcast. Today, I am interviewing Emily Daniels, who is the creator of The Regulated Classroom. So a little bit first about Emily. She is the author and creator of The Regulated Classroom, a former school counselor and a proud soccer mom. She is internationally (laughs) recognized. That's in your bio. Did you know that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) She is internationally recognized as a trauma specialist and trainer in the trauma-informed schools movement and has served thousands through in-person and virtual professional development training, workshops, conferences, and keynotes. Emily and her work have been featured in the Associated Press, Fox News, ABC News, the LA Times, and NPR. She holds a Master's of Education in School Counseling and an MBA in Organizational and Environmental Sustainability and is a nationally certified counselor. She continually refines her understanding of applied science of trauma through training and varied modalities, including somatic experiencing, sensory motor arousal therapy, or SMART, trauma-informed sensory modulation, and mindfulness-based stress reduction. So we are clearly here to talk all about regulation today, and (laughs) this one especially is going to be for teachers. So Emily, will you tell us what is the regulated classroom and what inspired you to create this resource for educators? Thank you. Thank you, Emily, so much for having I know, and we're Emily We're going to be confusing with our Emilys. I know, seriously. Um, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to this conversation. I'm excited to talk with you. Um, yeah, so the regulated classroom is actually a, a framework. Um, it's a way to think about what are the quality of experiences in the classroom that teachers well, or educators of any kind and kids really benefit from in terms of buffering stress and trauma and also, um, you know, in, in enhancing the, the enhancing joy in the classroom environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a framework. It's um, to help them think about that and to help them kind of have a point, a touch point, if you will, uh, cognitively speaking, um, for when they feel like they're noticing that they're starting to get super stressed or they're noticing that the kids in the classroom are dysregulated and that's starting to affect their nervous system. Mm-hmm. The way for them to think about, oh, I can try this, I can do this, I can use this to get us back to a state of regulation. Yeah. And I love this so much because, you know, as anyone listening knows, I present a lot to teachers and educators about what to do to support neurodivergent students, how to do those things. But as you and I both know, 
we cannot do all the things until we are regulated first. And, you know, you said to buffer some of those stressors that are happening. So what what does trauma-informed mean to you in the school setting? I, I think I want to start with helping teachers understand these words we throw around a lot as mental health providers of trauma-informed yeah. and polyvagal theory. What do you want them to first understand as the foundation um, of their nervous systems when they're in a classroom? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, for many, many years when I worked as a school counselor, I was always trying to support students from a perspective of like, um, you know, what sort of like a problem-solving perspective, like there must be a skills deficit, and so that's why they struggle in this way. And uh, and then I attended a conference put on by Bessel van der Kolk, and it was there that I first discovered this concept of being trauma-informed, which means understanding that a lot of the behaviors that we see in the classroom or a lot of the ways in which we struggle as adults is very much related to our own lived experiences. And that our bodies uh, and our nervous system, which is the system within the body that kind of automatically enables life and automatically cares for us, like, you know, it's what it's what supports our heartbeat and our digestion and our blood pressure and all those sorts of things. That this this system shifts often depending on how we are doing in the moment. And so to me, being trauma-informed meant um, starting to apply that understanding as opposed to seeing things through the lens of what's wrong with someone. And that's mm-hmm. a big shift because that was my training. I'm sure that was your training yes. too as, as a psychologist yes. is like, okay, what are, what are the ways in which this person is maybe, or this child is maybe pathological truthfully. And so I did a lot of like, oh, I think this kid has ADHD. I think this kid has anxiety. I think this kid might be bipolar. And always looking through the world through the lens of what's missing and what's the deficit. And to be trauma-informed, in my opinion, is to shift that and say, huh, what's going on for this child what, or this a person and what's, what's their lived experience been um, and how can we um, help them to, um, in their, how can we support them in their current state to uh, shift into a, a body state that would be um, more reflective of safety and regulation? It's a very different lens. I don't even know if I'm doing a good job of explaining that. (laughs) You are. And I'll I'll just, you know, add to that. I absolutely had this training, which, you know, I basically refer to as the medical model of things. You have a problem, you go see a provider, they diagnose you with something, and then they give you a treatment for that something. But these are not ear infections that can respond to antibiotics. This is much more complex. And and yes, children may have ADHD and trauma, or they may have some trauma that's making them look, um, you know, really active in certain situations, and that dynamic is more relational. And so we're looking for both, really, because you you want to figure out if it is trauma-based or just anxiety-driven that's only popping up in certain relationships or certain settings that can help educators know what to do next. Right. And it's, it's also reminding me of that phrase of, you know, thinking about what's happened to this child, not as what's wrong with this child, but what has happened to this child to this, even, even kindergartners come in with a possible preschool experience that could be, or, or no experience that could be making their nervous system any kind of way, you know, when they come into a classroom. So how does that connect with what we're, all learning about polyvagal theory. And what would you want educators to know about polyvagal theory, which everyone gets a little scared because it's a big word, but um, it's all connected, right? It's very connected. It's so funny too, because even listening to you talk, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I just don't ever think in diagnostic terms anymore. I really don't. I just see everything through the lens of the nervous system and the states of the nervous system. So what does that mean? That means, so yeah, there was this gentleman, Dr. Stephen Porges, who developed this theory in 1994, and it's only really penetrating like mass consciousness now because mm-hmm. that's how things are. It takes time for people to learn about, uh, you know, this this orientation or this paradigm. But um, to me, when I met his theory, which was again at Bessel's conference, it was truly life altering for me uh, because 
he explained things that I never had language for before. So let me give you an example. And, and when I first learned about polyvagal theory, it was through the work of Dr. Dr. Peter Levine and his modality of somatic experiencing. And even when I heard that term somatic experiencing, I connected with it because somatic stands for body-based, basically. So it's like, what are you experiencing in your body? And I remember and the, when I first met that concept, I was like, yes, oh my goodness. Because when I would uh, work with students or when I would experience my own suffering in life, there was a very powerful visceral experience in that that was unnamed and unacknowledged. So like I remember and have had those experiences where you're walking around with a huge lump in your throat and like an incredible ache in your heart or ache in your chest or like a, a knot in your belly. And um, when I was experiencing those things internally, it was absolutely affecting my behavior and my mindset and, and the way I thought about things. And I was like, yeah, that's really the driver for a lot of what I'm experiencing and what I'm doing in a moment. And that is polyvagal theory. Yeah. That's recognizing that your body's physiology is actually the platform through which all behavior is expressed. And it's also the filter through which you are seeing the world. Mm -hmm. So when you are walking around in a state of rage, you see things very differently than if you're walking around in a regulated state. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's, it's so polyvagal is just such to me, it's the most revolutionary concept related to psychology, mm -hmm. probably since Freud's time. Right. And, and, yeah. and, and it really does challenge a lot of that, his, his work, but uh, it's, it's revolutionary truly. Mm -hmm. And the reason I think we are both so passionate about continuing to talk to educators about this is that if anyone has ever spent time in a classroom, <laughs> it's like mm -hmm. an onslaught to your nervous system. Uh -huh. It's like uh -huh. noises and sounds and there are people uh -huh. in your space like all the time. Like if there's anyone whose nervous system is at risk for being overwhelmed, it is educators. hundred um, percent. Right. Like a hundred and ten percent. Truly. And here's the thing, too, that I think is what's exciting to me is that given how we, much we are struggling in our profession as educators, so I'm talking about classroom teachers and special education teachers and occupational therapists and, you know, school counselors, I mean, all of them, the paraeducators, like everybody is really struggling in that profession. And that is because we have been inundated with overwhelm, collective overwhelm from the pandemic, from school shootings, from the ways kids show up at schools today that we can end up feeling like, oh my God, I'm no good at this. Like I, I can't, I can't get a handle on this and I'm a failure at this. Or you can feel overwhelming shame or just even I talk about it, uh, about it uh, in terms of going dorsal. I joke about that a lot in my trainings to help educators understand that their nervous system is shifting in defensive ways to in protective ways naturally because they are so overwhelmed in their work. And that's very relieving to a lot of educators to know that it's not a personal failing. But yeah, will you say more, more about or give an example of going dorsal? Because yeah. I think that's, oh, yeah. I, I want teachers oh, yeah. to hear permission of like, this is not a choice. Right, exactly. And that's the biggest piece too for me is, again, with the polyvagal theory, it's recognizing that when our bodies are not experiencing explicit cues of safety from other people, or the environment that it sh our body shifts into a protective state and it's not a conscious thing. It's just literally a, a shift. And so when I talk to educators about it, I say, do you ever notice that like when you step over the threshold in the morning, entering into your school, you notice your heart rate increases and suddenly you just tense. I said, yeah, that's your body bracing for what's coming your way today. And that's a natural, normal response to too much overwhelm and not enough recovery. So what happens is, to answer your question about going dorsal, what happens is when there is that much prolonged stress, eventually the body will make an adaptation so that we distance ourselves from that suffering. And so we literally end up going numb, like functionally speaking. We go numb. We are not present in our experience. We're just there. Like we're going through the motions but we're not really there. You know what I'm saying? So I talk to them a lot about, and like when I start to describe that, they're like, oh my God, yeah, totally. 
they're like, that's a hundred percent what I do. Like I get there and I do my job, but I'm not really there. Right. Because at this point, many seasoned, seasoned, anyone, seasoned educators, seasoned therapists, you seasoned parents, you can go on autopilot because you've been doing it so long, but you're calling it in as a coping mechanism to get through the day. So if you feel that calling it in thing, it may feel like you're, you're maintaining, you're getting it done, but at what cost? Like this is so exhausting for our bodies. So you're explaining what my next question was, which is, you know, talking about the autonomic nervous system and this like stress cycle we go through and we have a stressor and then we have a recovery after that. Um, could you give an example of like something a teacher might notice, like going over the threshold is a great one, but especially with like an interaction with a student, something a teacher mm. might notice and, yep. and be like the first signal. What is, what would be the first signal of their stress response that's sending their autonomic nervous system into that cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So it it can depend. It can look a little bit different depending on the circumstance, but one of those circumstances is, or one of those, um, I think pretty powerful inner experiences is when you start to feel the storm begin to surge on the inside and you're noticing like you're having a hard time even like coming up with something to say or a way in which to react that isn't explosive. And there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that. And it's not because the person is out of control who's experiencing that. It's because the circumstance is so heightened. Um, And for them, if it's been a repetitive kind of circumstance, like a student is particularly challenged or scary, Mm -hmm. that can happen with some of our students. Their behaviors can be quite scary. Um, It's natural for their bodies to be very protective. And when that happens, they're starting to feel that sense of like um, what would be mobilization, which is in polyvagal terms, a defense mobilization is that fight flight reaction starting to take um, hold. And they would notice perhaps an increased heart rate, harder time breathing, a harder time even um, really formulating a compassionate response. (laughs) So when they start to notice that, and that's a lot what I work with with educators is like, let's dial into what's happening for you in this moment. And throughout my trainings, when I train folks, I'm literally asking them that question and saying to them, I'm going to be annoying. And I'm going to say to you, what do you notice happening on the inside right now? Um, and I'm constantly doing that through the course of training to try to bring them back to noticing self, noticing state, noticing w- where they are in their nervous system functioning. Because if they're not able to be self-aware, they may un- unintentionally and inadvertently be contributing to an escalation with a student or students. I want to say hi to all the teachers out there learning with me. Thank you so much for being an educator. I see you and appreciate you and how you keep showing up for our students every single day. In my work as a school psychologist, I know that it helps to have a way to stay organized when thinking about your students' needs. That's why I created two free resources for you. The regulation roster helps you notice how your students seek emotional regulation and keep track of it. And the reframing behavior worksheet helps you problem solve emotional dysregulation when it happens. For these free downloads, go to learnwithdremily.com slash roster or learnwithdremily.com slash reframing behavior to get started. I want to welcome any parents who are new to this journey. If your child has just been identified as autistic or diagnosed with ADHD, learning differences, or is twice exceptional, welcome. You are in the right place. You may also be overwhelmed by all the calls and emails you're having to make to providers as you're building your child's team. That's why I created the Referral Tracker, which is a free download at learnwithdremily.com tracker. This free resource explains what each provider does and gives you a template to keep track of all your research. Just go to learnwithdremily.com slash tracker to get started. Right. And I think that first step is being aware of it because there are many Mm -hmm. parents and educators who have been Mm -hmm. living in survival state for so long. Mm -hmm. You may not even be aware of what you're feeling and exactly. there's an exhaust if there's an exhaustion there, you're you're feeling it. You're just maybe not registering it. Um, so once once teachers start to notice it, 
what next? Yeah. This question of like right. every educator is like, well, what do we do now? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, there's a, so in the framework that I offer, there's these four qual, and I know I'm kind of jumping. No, let's jump bit, into them. These, okay. Yeah. There's these four qualities of experience that we know help to essentially bring us back into a state of regulation and their, their practices of co-regulation and there's connectors, activators, settlers, and affirmations. So one of the things that I'm always encouraging is for them to be using these practices with great frequency in tiny doses, in micro doses, as a form of actually prevention, because there isn't a lot that's happening in the classroom environment at this point in time that's really acknowledging or caring for the collective nervous system. There's just, we're very academically focused yes, and or are. classroom management. Yeah. And or classroom management focused. So it's like, we're not really actually thinking about what our biology requires for best performance. So I have them, you know, consciously be dosing in these quality of experiences to try to help keep the collective nervous system in there more regulated. However, when they start to notice activation or going dorsal. There are tools. I have sensory toolkits that, that I actually are part of my products that um, I teach them how to use to help them gain a sense of regulation in a moment um, and then to engage in a core practice. So it's like, you know, self-awareness is the first step. And then when they start to notice that things are are, are heading towards protective states, that they are to reach for a sensory tool and or begin a practice in the moment. Um, so it's like you literally drop what you're doing and do a practice. Um, and I train in that way. So they are very accustomed to, by the time they're done training with me, they, they have a sense of what I'm talking about. Um, because it's natural and normal for people to lose focus and to check out um, or to get you know, dysregulated in some way. And, you know, it's important for us to kind of come back together and do something regulating together. Yeah. And I'm sitting here thinking about, um, you know, just the pace with which teachers move through their day. And if they are on autopilot because of a survival state and they're doing their thing and they're moving forward. And if they, they may be feeling worried, if I stop and feel my body and take a mm -hmm. breath or slow down, it's mm -hmm. all going to fall apart. And so there's a fear yeah. there, I bet, of, yeah. um, shifting. I'm sure this is a huge part of just the mindset shift of, um, I'm going to try something different, but I, I think, you know, just practicing those connectors, like you said, when as prevention, when things are calmer, um, and, and just making them there's, they, I'm assuming would be so short, right? Can you give a, an example or two of a connector that's your oh, favorite so just short. To, to help yeah. people know how short they are? So you don't need to be fearful yeah. that you're going to like lose control of your classroom. It's actually going to help. Right. Right. Exactly. So the connectors are play-based practices for the most part, and they're a way for us to just kind of reestablish a relational connection and relational belonging. And so one of the ones that I, I use frequently in, in trainings, and then they take back to their classrooms is called one, two, three, four. And so one is you clap your hands three times. Two is that you stomp right, left, Three is that you cluck like a chicken and you purposely open your mouth wide while you're doing it because that's actually a way to stimulate the vagus nerve. So you're like, bark, bark, bark. you're opening up that realm of social engagement. And then the fourth is to turn to next, someone next to you and pretend like you're seeing them for the first time in a long time. And so it's like, and again, you're opening on purpose the whole realm of social engagement. Because the thing about like when folks start to dig into polyvagal theory, there's so much to it. And one of the things that just resonates powerfully for me and for a lot of educators is this recognition that like our whole face and our, and our vocal structures and, and our listening mechanisms, these are all been sophisticatedly, they, they've, they've evolved in sophisticated ways such that this is the primary way in which we convey cues of safety and receive them from others. And so a lot of educators don't know that. Some of us know that, like psychologists and counselors, because we're trained. In our training, we learn about the importance of modulating our voice and eye contact, intermittent eye contact, and those sorts of things. But um, a lot of educators don't don't know these things. And so it's, it's eye-opening for them, coupled with we talk and we work with a lot of this realm of social engagement was was um, closed off for a number of years uh, due to the pandemic. 
And so we, we, yeah. So it's like some of our kids really haven't experienced a lot of social projection from the facial and, and vocal structures because it, they were, ma- you know, people in their vicinity were masked and whatnot. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of residue from the pandemic that has impacted our ability to share cues of safety with one another. Well, and I think too, some of these connectors come naturally to some people's personalities. And yeah. I know as a parent, you you feel that like if you have a, a certain, if your child has a teacher who's musical or your child has a teacher who's just energetically likes to move a lot, you know, you get this feeling of like, you know, and kids will see like, oh, this teacher's fun or this teacher like, right. you know, gets us right. organized but and ready to work. But those are, yes. yes, those are all aligned with sometimes personalities, but they're, it's not, ha- this is not happening by accident. This is actually regulating student nervous systems and getting them ready to work. So um, it, it's not just because that teacher likes music, you know, all that we know about music and movement and like stomping your exactly. feet and the bilateral movement of that and grounding. So um, what else would you say about teachers who feel like they're, First of all, some of the things I'm sure that you're, I know you mentioned as connectors, they might feel silly doing them, right? Like they feel like it's outside of their personality. Um, I guess what would be helpful for them to make this jump and and like, no, this is really going to change the way that you interact with your students. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I talk often about is the the benefit of using nostalgia on purpose in the classroom. So what's so cool is when you start to move into this polyvagal perspective, you start to see the world through a somatic lens, meaning you start to have more, um, I, I guess, regard for uh inborn uh inborn wisdom inborn like implicit knowing body based wisdom that kind of thing and one of the things that helps us to recognize this uh like treasure trove of positive associations we have in our body memory is to work with nostalgia so i i um in fact i started a training the other day and i put up two pictures on the on the and this is a virtual training with about 65 people and i put up two pictures and one was of the viewfinder. I don't know if you remember that from like the 80s, like the thing that you used to look through and it had like a little cartridge. And the other pic- the other picture was of an easy bake oven. And the amount of just like sheer joy from people seeing those two pictures because it brings them back. And music can do that for us big time as well. And so within the regulated classroom, there's quite a few practices that I have included there on purpose to help us incite that nostalgia so that when we go to share some of these quality of experiences with our students, we are literally showing up as our joyful selves in an authentic way because we remember doing these things and we remember the joy that it brought us. And now we're sharing that with the kids and that's very contagious. So nostalgia is a great place to start. I love. And that. I tell, I tell teachers all the time or educators all the time. I'm like, I'm going to take you through a lot of different experiences when you first hear the directions, you're going to cringe. You're going to think, I hate this. And I want you to notice that in your nervous system. And then I want you to notice how you actually feel after we're done doing this. And, 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 you know, and I've done this with literally thousands of people and it's remarkable and it's consistent. It's like, I noticed the stress response because it was something new or something different. But then once we did it, I felt so great. I felt more regulated. I felt more grounded. I, because the practices all contain these really robust quality of experiences that we know humans benefit from. And we know that kids need these quality of experiences. So one of the, one of the things I hear most often from people is like, well, this sounds great for like elementary school kids, but I'm not doing this stuff with high schoolers. Like these high schoolers don't want to do this. Yeah, they do. And what I say to them, <laughs> yes, they do. And yes, they need this so desperately. Our kids, our teens are so socially isolated, so many of them, and they desperately need these social experiences. Um, they support their sequential development, so it's and they're sorely lacking in our technological landscape, you know, of childhood today. So and because of the pandemic, a lot of kids had really restricted social experiences mm-hmm. through the pandemic too. You're reminding me of just in my therapy practice, I have like a, a regular therapy room with like couches and chairs. And then I have a playroom with bean bags and all kinds Love of it. things, it, all kinds of things. And you would think that middle schoolers and high schoolers would walk right by the playroom and be like, no, I'm fine. I'll sit on the therapy couch. 
they, you know what catches their eye? Play-Doh. They're like, can we play with oh, yeah. Play-Doh while we talk? Oh, I'm like, yeah. absolutely. And 100%. so you 100%. just have to expose them to some things and, and catch their engagement and catch their interest. And you wouldn't believe what you know, Play-Doh will do for getting kids to talk. <laughs> so it's, it's um, so true. It just it's reminded so me of true. that. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about activators. So what are some of your favorite strategies once we were feeling connected? And, and it, again, these aren't linear. You're doing these, I'm sure, no, in and out of all these linear. moments. But once you feel like at least you have the foundation of you could, you know, pull out a connector anytime you need it. Yeah. Tell me more about activators and what that means. Yeah. So connectors are, um, they're, they're relational practices rooted in play activators by contrast. I mean, they're often many, many of them are quite playful, but they all contain a collective rhythm making quality, um, or feature to the, to the experience. And so this is really quite absent in our school environment, especially at the middle school and high school level. There's just nothing that we're doing intentionally in the classroom to generate collective synchrony and to make collective rhythm. And what we know from an abundance of research is that rhythm in particular is regulating. And Dr. Bruce Perry does a beautiful job of explaining why that is. But um, again, it's, it's so, so when I start a lot of my trainings, I usually start with rhythm sticks. That's literally how we start before we do anything. I like get up there and I'm like, okay, guys, if you know, this might be too much for, for from an auditory standpoint for some of you, let, you know, if so, then do what you need to do to care for yourself. But I'll put a song on and we start rhythm sticking it. And I can't tell you how much that has spread like wildfire. You know, some of the work that I do is is at the state level or a statewide level. Um, I have a contract in, in the state of Maine currently that, so I'm training a ton of trainers in this framework. And one of the things that they report is that they immediately go back at themselves some rhythm sticks and bring them right into the classroom. And the kids and staff are loving it. So um, there's lots of different ways to do collective rhythm making. It doesn't have to look like that, but it's um, it's joyful. It's truly joyful. But most importantly, it's very organizing for the um, for the nervous system. Right. So activators are more um, getting us organized and alert and engaged and in rhythm versus connectors are just increasing that engagement. Exactly. The thing about it too is that um, activators, and I always say this to folks, that's actually the best place to start with the framework if you're going to start anywhere is to try an activator for like 30 seconds um, and to just go very slow and to go, meaning like dip a toe in with it because um, we have such, you know, we have such a need to synchronize with other people and actually in the literature, it's usually like an attachment literature. It's usually more called like attuning to someone else, but really we're, we're getting in sync with someone else. And that's very important to the experience of felt safety. So activators are very powerful experiences. They give us a joyful experience with other people and they help us feel safe with one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love that. They're amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah, they are. And I think, you know, it just reminds me of all the co-regulation research and how, um, you know, in play therapy, we call this rocking the baby, but with an older kid, you know, you can't, we're not rocking eight-year-olds anymore, but you can play in a way and and get in a rhythm with an eight-year-old. That's like 100%. the same feeling of, of 100%. rocking a baby. Mm-hmm. 100%. And they need it and they need it and they need it. And it not only helps to support their, their, um, you know, own capacities for self-regulation eventually, but it actually helps us repair our nervous systems from too much overwhelm. Because that's the thing about the framework is it's like not just supporting the kids, it's also in there trying to help the educators repair their own overwhelm and widen their window of tolerance. Right. Because, um, we never got this right. Like we never, we never no. got much practice no. in this. Like the closest we no. would have gotten to this is if you were, you know, into music or drumming or dance, or you noticed, yeah. you know, I was into music and dance growing up, and I always noticed less stress at those times of my week or my day. Never put it together until I was an adult and learned more about what was actually happening in my body. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Exactly. Exactly. So what are settlers and when do we need them? And when would a teacher need to use one of those? Right. So I'm just going to keep reviewing the framework. So the framework is four core practices, connectors, activators, settlers, affirmations. And these are the quality of experiences that support 
sequential growth and development, and buffer stress and trauma. So connectors are play-based, activators are collective rhythm-making practices, settlers are practices that settle the body. They center us, they ground us, they make us feel calmer. And these usually have come into our schools in the form of um, school-wide mindfulness practices or school-wide yoga. You know, those are the two most common that you hear about. But one of the things that I encountered when I was doing this kind of work as a school counselor is that I would, I would, I would inevitably come upon teachers or students who would say, I don't like that. And I was like, oh gosh, what do you mean you don't like it? I don't, I can't stand mindfulness. I can't stand trying to be still. I can't stand trying to not think, that kind of thing. And so in the settler practices in the regulated classroom, they're essentially like a poopery. They're like in a, a, an a, array of opportunities to determine what helps your body settle down. Because not all settling comes in the form of yoga or comes in the meaning People can get there, but I want them to find an entry point that immediately connects with their nervous system and helps them to calm down. So, um, yeah, so that's that's basically what they are about. And um, a lot of times I will say to folks, it's good for you to try a settling practice when you notice you're just feeling like a frenzy, especially on the inside, when the inside feels like it's really kind of chaotic and out of control, that's when you need some grounding support, you know, like some self-hold grounding support. And you not only can you use your nervous system as your own barometer. So if you need it, I can just about guarantee it's because the kids are in need of it. You know, we're contagious in our nervous system states. And so when the kids are not doing well, neither are we, right? Our nervous systems get really activated. So um, that's when you use settlers. And it's important for them to use settlers and activators intentionally throughout the course of the day because what they're doing is they're trying to widen their window of distress tolerance, you know, and so they're getting mobilized, but within a regulated state, and then they're coming down and they're settling and they're they're dropping their baseline from a physiological standpoint as they settle and slow their heart rate and their breathing. And so they want you want I want them to be doing this with the students over and over and over again as much as they possibly can. And do you ever recommend, you know, the almost a routine practice of of grounding, mm-hmm. you know, like before, mm-hmm. I'm just thinking of like how easy this could be incorporated into a morning meeting um, mm-hmm. where it becomes routine. Because as we know, any type of grounding or mindfulness practice, one of the reasons that we don't like it is because it mm-hmm. feels foreign. It feels hard. It feels yes. like I can't turn off my brain. My brain's going a thousand miles an hour because we're out of right. practice. There's, there's a reason yoga is called a practice or mindfulness called a yeah. practice. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly right. These are all practices. Um, yes, absolutely. And so what I in the guidebook that I have, um, I actually lay out sort of how could this look as part of the routines of the classroom at the preschool level, at the elementary level, at the secondary level, because there are different structures at those different grade levels. Um, but I absolutely encourage them to to in in a prevention way, microdose it in with regularity, and then to also use it as they feel it's needed. Because the best part about it is this is not a 40-minute social-emotional learning lesson. This is a literal microdose repair. So this is 30 seconds to four minutes at most to just dose in these quality of experiences to just kind of, it's a reset, right? It's a reset mm-hmm. for your nervous system and for theirs. And in many yeah. ways, um, what I think both of us talk about in our work is this is not like one more thing to teach in a long, like sit down and learn it thing, which is how no. education is framed. Right. But we're 100%. throwing that idea out. And it, this is like, as you know, we know all of this is bottom up. So let's, um, exactly. I want to talk about affirmations in a second. Before we dive into that, can we talk a little bit more about that window of tolerance you were talking about and and that bottom up feeling? Because that's a huge mindset shift because education huge. is so top down. It's like, here's so the curriculum. Let's all get it into the brains. It's all cognitive. All and cognitive. What, tell, tell everybody more about what we mean by that. 
Yeah. So great question, Em. Thank you for it. It's it's so bottom up means that we're recognizing that the that the brain is processing its information through the sensory systems literally bottom up. And so if those sensory messages come in and they're coupled with cues of threat or they are um, overwhelming because the sensory stimuli in the classroom is overwhelming, the way in which that gets gets processed in the brain is going to have a dysregulating effect on our nervous system state. Um, it's going to cause us to look stressed, right? Or to experience stress or for the students to experience stress. So bottom-up means we are purposely, um, you know, working with the body's wisdom and the body's needs from a biological perspective in order to help the brain function in the most efficient, organized way possible. Um, and that primes the brain for actual learning, right? So it's like, if things are happening at the lower parts of the brain in a more organized fashion, then guess what? We can teach and deliver inspired instruction and the students are available for learning. It's like exactly what we've always been wanting. And we have not been able to get to through our current structures um, because of exactly what you said. We think about everything in terms of curriculum, everything must have an assessment. And it's so funny, when I first developed the framework, I remember people coming to me and being like, well, what is your like, you know, pre-baseline or your baseline assessment for the regular? I'm like, no, this is no, this is not a curriculum. There's not going to be any tests involved. There's no, you know, there's no sequence that you have to adhere to. You know, this is, and and it really is hard for folks because they're like, what do what do you mean? Like that's how we do everything in school. And I'm like, and that's why we're not doing so hot in school, right? That's a big reason why things aren't going the way we want them to. So it's an excellent question. And but what's beautiful about it is that we can look to places like clinical psychology in that field and see how things are moving more in that direction there. I mean, the whole field of somatic psychology is just exploding, which is fabulous because I feel like there's more recognition, more understanding of these things that we're talking about, more credibility to them. And it's finally starting to penetrate the field of education. Yeah. And where um, I see it in my work is this cross-section with neurodiversity because our neurodivergent kids have such sensitive nervous systems. This is the only way they can learn. The only way they can learn is to be regulated. And it really is the only way everyone can learn. But exactly, neurotypical learners tend to have um, an ability to override some of these things with executive functioning and organization that helps them kind of, quote unquote, get through school. I was one of those students that I just I got through school. Um, and loved school, went to school for a very long time, got a doctorate in the psychology of school. <laughs> so, but oh looking God. back, I realized, um, you know, the test anxiety I had, the the times where I didn't really start thinking for myself until later than I should have, right? Because I was just checking the boxes of school. So I get really passionate about, you know, helping kids have more authentic um, school experiences based on that mindset shift. So thank you. Yeah. for. I, w- I was not, I was not that student, <laughs> not until much later, not until like college, because I, and I think that's part of why I'm passionate about what the work I do is because had more of these experiences been a part of my schooling, I would have done so much better and been so much more regulated in the classroom environment, you know, and it wasn't like I was a behavior issue per se, but I just was not engaged. I wasn't engaged. It just didn't, the environment was, yeah, I was, I did not thrive in a fully cognitive environment. Mm-hmm. And I was a student who over-functioned into it and probably music and, and movement and dance and all of that just kept me regulated and I didn't know it. Yeah. So it's fascinating yeah. what we think about when we look back on our own right? school experiences. Right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. 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 Um, totally. Yeah. So the the fourth practice um, in the list is affirmations. So tell us a few of your favorite affirmations and, and when teachers would use these. Yeah. So part of why I included affirmations in the core practices was a little bit to challenge our thinking about reinforcement as as it's mo- most commonly discussed in a PBIS model. So of course, trained in a PBIS model, chaired that in two of my schools, you know, went on to be like a, you know, like anyways, um, very into PBIS at the time, um, because that was the thing at the time and, but found it to be, um, 
overwhelmingly ineffectual. And so one of the things that was noted in that is just that we would try and reinforce, you know, the correct behaviors or the compliant behaviors or the expected behaviors. And not that that doesn't have its place. I mean, I believe in praise and there's, it's powerful and it's good for people to hear those sorts of things and to, you know, at time experience reward for certain things. But um, with, with, in the regulated classroom, affirmations are about genuine embodied gratitude. So it's about those moments that you have with your students where you're like, this is good, right? Where it's like a real ventral vagal, collective ventral vagal shift. And this is polyvagal terms, but in polyvagal terms, when we're in a ventral state, we're in a regulated state in our physiology. And so it's important for us to hold space and time when we experience that with our students to really savor it. That's the language of Deb Dana. But um, that's what an affirmation is. So it's there are some practices within the guidebook that are cute, um, like, you know, soaring gratitude, which is how you, you know, make paper airplanes with an affirmation that you write on the back of it, and then you send it through the classroom for others to read, um, stuff like that. But really, it's more about taking a cognitive, this is the one thing that is more cognitive, it's sort of taking the cognitive mind and doubling down on noticing collectively that things are good right now, right? That like in my belly, I'm feeling this sense of release and just, um, you know, comfort as I'm with you all right now. So um, it's, it's not, it's more about the educator and or the students communicating out loud to one another or in some way, expressing in some way that they're experiencing gratitude in a moment. And that's very important because we are overwhelmed with cues of threat and safe and uh, danger in a, in a, in a classroom environment that we need to double down on moments of true belonging, true regulation, true safety. Um, and they, they do happen or like joy, like when we're they having a joyful moment happen. in the classroom, they really do happen. And it's like, we're not wasting time to be like, Hey, y'all, how are we doing? Because I'm feeling right now in my belly, like, so good. How about you guys? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when you describe it, I'm thinking back to the beginning of our conversation of noticing triggers, noticing tension, noticing bracing yes. yourself going into the classroom. Yes. This is also noticing, of yes. course, but noticing the yes. good stuff. Exactly. We have to notice both and we have to teach our kids to notice both so that we can find that balance and feel like it's all worth it, right? <laughs> exactly, Emily, like exactly. And I'm loving that you're totally resonating with what I'm describing. And that's, it really is important. And um, it's really important for, more than anything, it's really important for solid relationships. Like what I think I, I am able to provide for educators is a real actionable way to build relationships with students in the classroom. And we talk about that a lot in the literature. And we talk about that a lot, like the importance of safe relationships for kids and for healing trauma, but we don't know how to do that. And one of the things we have to recognize too, is that the body will take over and protect us when we don't feel safe. And so in the regulated classroom, I'm really honoring that new understanding and that new acknowledgement um, and, and trying to give our bodies what they need in order to feel safe with one another. But really, when, in, in, the, in the grand scheme of things, I'm really trying to give folks a way to make and build relationships with students. That's, that's good for us both. That's good for us and it's good for them. Right, right. So yeah. what is one takeaway you would want to give educators who feel like, okay, I can't go to this training tomorrow, but they're probably making a mental note that they want to. Um, and <laughs> what would be a takeaway that they would um, could do tomorrow in their classroom? So I think a couple of different things for, for them, I would say, I, I wish you grace, like, and I wish you self-compassion for yourself because you are not a failure. You are not crazy. You are not lazy. You have been enduring under really um, exceedingly difficult circumstances. And the fact that you're still there showing up every day is remarkable. So like that's a first starting place of just saying like you're, you're normal. Whatever you're struggling with in the classroom is normal given what you are experiencing. And also, if nothing else, bring in a piece of music you like. Appropriate, of course, but 
bring in a piece of music that you like and play not the whole thing, but like 60 seconds of it with your students. Just start to bring in something that brings you joy. Something that you could microdose in that was a very short little snippet of something, but you know that for you, it, it actually encourages a nervous system shift to a more joyful state, to a safer state. That's the beginning point of this work. And it's not selfish and it's not self-indulgent. It's what your body needs in order to help you recover from what you've been living through. Yeah. And I love the idea of giving permission, research-based permission to involve Mm -hmm. music and movement in the classroom. Because like you said, it feels indulgent sometimes or feels distracting. I'll never forget Mm -hmm. my walking by my high school English teacher's room one time. This was the 90s. And I heard her playing Melissa Etheridge while she was creating papers. And I was like, oh, she's cool. Like we instantly had this connection And I didn't even say anything to her about it, you know, at the time. And so those moments kids remember like forever because we feel it in our body. So I'm a huge music nerd and will love how we connect um, psychology and music and and all those things. So um, this has been an awesome, awesome conversation, Emily. Thank you so much. Fantastic. It's just like talking to a kindred spirit. Um, yeah, no wonder why we're yeah. both Emily's. <laughs> I know. So where can people right? go to find more about the regulated classroom? Yeah, please, please, please. So regulatedclassroom.com. And then also we're on Instagram and Facebook, um, regulated classroom. And so I would encourage you to follow us. Um, Emma, who does our social media on a daily basis is always on there posting fantastic strategies and tips and affirmations and, you know, ways to really make our um, educators feel supported. Because that's our goal is to help folks feel supported and equipped to um, do things differently so that they can sustain in the work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, all the links will be in the show notes. And so um, just check out the regulated classroom and Emily's work. And um, we are very much integrated in helping neurodivergent students and all the teachers that are teaching them. So thanks again. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been great. This has been the Learn with Dr. Emily podcast. For more resources, including parent workshops and professional development for teachers, visit learnwithdremily.com or subscribe to my Substack at learnwithdremily.substack.com. Also, please make sure you're subscribed to the podcast by pressing the follow button on whatever podcast app you're using right now. This podcast is edited by Earfluence. All information discussed on the podcast is for educational purposes only. If you have any immediate concerns about your child or a student, please reach out to a mental health or medical professional. I'm Dr. Emily King. Thank you for listening and learning with me. Let's stay connected.